0: If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn them to Luke chapter 9? We've been, I realized, in Luke 9 for nearly the whole summer, and we're finally finishing this long chapter. And our passage tonight is Luke 9 51 to 62. Before we begin, let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you furnish your servant with wisdom, fidelity, Zeal and utterance, that I may divide the word of God aright to everyone his portion, in evidence and demonstration of the Spirit and power. Help us each to hear, love, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Strengthen us all against the temptations of Satan, the cares of the world, and the hardness of our own hearts. May Christ be so formed in us and live in us that all our thoughts may be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and our hearts established in every good work word and work forever we ask in Jesus' name amen well many of you have jobs in corporate business and some of you run your own businesses Others of you carry the responsibility of balancing your household's budget, making sure that the needs that your household has are provided for with the resources that you have available. I spend my working week as a business analyst, reviewing data, trying to help companies meet their goal of making a profit. But to some degree, we all make these types of calculations and decisions. Uh, Because we're all limited people, with limited resources. We can't do everything all the time or all at once. And so we, we budget our money and our time and our energy to, to based on what we think the best use of each of those things are. So, so whether you do it formally or informally, we all do some kind of cost-benefit analysis. We consider the possible actions that we need to take, We consider the alternatives, we consider what each action will cost us, and what the outcome will likely be, and then we decide which of these we prefer the most, and we take that action. And you may be saying, what on earth does cost-benefit analysis have to do with this passage of scripture? And I'm very glad you asked. You see, in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we've entered a new section. You may have noticed that in the first several chapters... Luke focuses on Jesus' ministry in Galilee and in Judea. And Luke recorded lots of miracles and lots of narratives of Jesus interacting with all kinds of different people. And there was one question that kept coming up over and over again. Kids, do you remember that question that we've been asking for the majority of the Gospel of Luke? Who is this Jesus? Luke's been hammering home this, the importance of, of answering that question. Who is Jesus? And then as we heard as a, few week, uh, a few weeks back, Peter spoke up on behalf of the disciples and gave the correct answer. Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus had brought his disciples along to know who he is. And then two weeks ago, we reach the pinnacle of this first section of the gospel, at the Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John were given a brief glimpse of the glory that confirms that Jesus is the Son of God. That scene on the top of the mountain was a turning point in the gospel. So now in this next section, Luke's going to record fewer miracles and fewer narratives. He's going to focus more on Jesus' teaching and his parables. In the first major section, Luke has answered the question for us, who is Jesus? And now in this section, he brings the crucial next question. So how will you respond to this Jesus who is the Christ of God? Luke is inviting Theophilus and he's inviting us to become disciples of Jesus, to follow him. But he doesn't want us to do it with blinders on. Following Jesus comes at a cost. And our passage tonight shows us just what we may have to give up to be a follower of Christ. Each of us must decide for ourselves what following Jesus is worth. So instead of dividing the text up, I want us to work through it and consider three costs. First, the cost of Jesus' mission, then the cost of following Jesus, and then finally, the cost of rejecting Jesus. Let's look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We've entered a new phase of Jesus' ministry. And and it's interesting to me that Luke lays out three primary phases, and they all end in a pinnacle. Jesus' ministry in Galilee culminates at the Mount of Transfiguration. Next, this journey to Jerusalem will lead directly to his death on a hill called Golgotha. And then finally, his post-resurrection encounters with his disciples end with his ascension from Mount Olivet. So Jesus comes down one mountain and immediately turns his attention to another. The days had drawn near for him to be taken up. And the term that Luke uses here is is an interesting one. It only occurs here in the New Testament. And and with it, Luke seems to be encompassing Jesus' death, but also his resurrection and his ascension all into one idea of his being taken up. Jesus had carried out a preaching and a healing ministry But now the time had come for him to accomplish the salvation of his people. So the first cost that we see of Jesus' mission is it will cost his own life. He had been traveling through the countryside, preaching, teaching, healing, working wonders. But none of this was sufficient. Contrary to what many had expected of the Messiah, Jesus is no mere military leader He's no mere wise man or prophet. He's certainly not a magician. He came to do far more than just postpone the effects of sin by healing people temporarily. He came to do far more than to overthrow an oppressive government. He came to do far more than only to give instruction or be an example of how we should live. He came to be the sin-bearing substitute suffering and dying for the sins of his people so that they could be forgiven. His journey into Jerusalem was not going to be the victory march that many of his disciples expected it to be. He made it clear all along the way that he was going to Jerusalem to die. There was no other way for sinners to be cleansed of their guilt and shame, so fulfilling this mission was of first importance. And Jesus readily accepted this cost. Luke's description here calls to mind a prophecy of Isaiah. In chapter 50, Isaiah wrote a description of the Lord's future servant who would bring deliverance to his people. And he wrote this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. Jesus set his face like flint on Jerusalem. He didn't ignore the cost. He didn't bypass the cost. Instead, he looked beyond this cost to the reward. If you are with us during our study of Hebrews, you may remember what the author of that book told us about Jesus. He wrote... For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just like Luke, the author of Hebrews has united the crucifixion and the ascension of Jesus, showing us that for Jesus, the cost of the cross was worth, was worth it, because we are his people, we are his reward. But this impending death in Jerusalem was not the only cost. In the meantime, Jesus would also pay the cost of rejection. Not just by the Jewish leaders, as we've already seen, but by all kinds of people. As demonstrated by the Samaritan's town's rejection of him. Let's look at verses 52 and 53. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Most Jews at this time looked down on the Samaritans as half-breeds and unclean. And so most of them avoided even traveling through Samaria. But Jesus was constantly inclusive in his ministry. He gladly went to Gentile areas, and here he even eagerly entered Samaritan territory. What should have been an honor for this town was met with outright rejection. Interestingly, if you remember back in our study of Luke 4, Luke records that Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. He began his ministry in Galilee with a rejection in that first phase of his public ministry. Those who knew him rejected him because he claimed to fulfill Scripture. And now in this next phase, the Samaritans who don't know him reject him as he continues to go fulfill scripture. See, the the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. So Jesus' determination to pass through, to go to Jerusalem, was an affront to their religious sensibilities. Jesus always confronts false religion with his exclusive claims. And these Samaritans were having none of it. We see that same thing even today, don't we? Our culture hates the idea of an exclusive and excluding Jesus. So while many outside and many even inside the visible church readily accept a Jesus of their own making, who never confronts them, they reject a Jesus revealed in Scripture that doesn't endorse their beliefs and their behavior. And and this is a unique instance in Luke's writings. If you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and if you read Acts, he actually goes out of his way, it seems like, to paint the Samaritans in a positive light. But in this case, we see that the Samaritans are just like everybody else. By nature, they are sinful people who, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, will reject God and his Messiah. But also notice Jesus' response. He doesn't debate with them. He doesn't cajole them. He doesn't seek common ground with them. Nor does he bring instantaneous judgment or force them into submission. He knew that his mission included the cost of being rejected by all sorts of people. So he readily accepted the cost of this rejection and he simply moves on to another town. Jesus' mission was not to destroy life, but to save it. So he did here what he had commanded the twelve to do when he sent them out. At the beginning of chapter 9, he shook the dust off his feet and moved on. Just as he had done before in Nazareth, just as he will do in Jerusalem, when he was rejected, he didn't waver, he didn't revile in return, but he accepted this cost and continued on toward his reward. Finally, In verses 57 and 58, we see that Jesus' mission cost him earthly comforts. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't know if you've ever really stopped to think about it. I don't think I had until I was studying for this. But our Savior... The one who we look to for salvation, for provision, and as our only hope in life and in death, didn't have a home on earth. He had followers that helped attend to his physical needs, but he had none of the earthly prosperity that we experience every single day. Like Abraham before him, he had promises from God that his needs would be met and that he would have an inheritance of nations. But like Abraham before him, during his life, the Lord Jesus did not own a square inch of the promised land. He was so poor that at his crucifixion, soldiers cast lots for his one possession, his clothing. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Not many of us have gone to bed at night, not knowing for certain where our next meal would come from or where we would find shelter the next day. But Jesus was an itinerant teacher traversing the countryside without a place to lay his head. And, and the irony of his statement here about animals, doesn't echo back to his birth? He was placed in a feeding trough because he didn't even have a crib. And now as an adult, even wild animals have comforts that the incarnate Son of God did not enjoy. One commentator says this, Even the humblest animals have their shelters and lairs, while the Son of Man, who is nonetheless powerful and lordly, has nowhere to lay his head. He is assuredly not deprived of security, but his security resides not in a material or human protection, but in God's love and authority. Brothers and sisters, the word of God set aside infinite, eternal glory to trek across the sin-sick world to save us. This makes the words of Paul to the Philippian church seem like such an understatement when he writes, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was enough that he took on flesh to die for us. But his mission meant that his life on this earth cost him any possibility of comfort and ease. And again, he readily took this on because the reward was worth the price. We should never move beyond the marvel of the love of God that he would give his only son to live a poor life of suffering, to be rejected even by his very own, to die abandoned by his closest friends, all to forgive us our sins and reconcile us to himself. There is no greater love story than that of this groom and the extent of his love for his bride. So having seen the cost that Jesus is willing to pay, let's now turn our attention to the cost of following Jesus. And this should be really clear to us, I think, If the master himself lives a life like this, those who want to follow him should be prepared for the same kind of life. So first we see Jesus' disciples should expect to experience rejection without retaliation. Look back at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. These disciples were sent ahead as representatives of Jesus. They were looking for accommodations for their traveling party. And as his representatives, they were rejected and sent on their way. And we could probably understand their response, right? With this newfound knowledge they have of Jesus being the Messiah, and especially for Peter, James, and John, with that vision still in their heads of Jesus in his glory, why wouldn't they be indignant to see him rejected? Don't these Samaritans know who he is? Who do they think they are rejecting us? But for anyone that's experienced, Rejection. We also know that that sting hits us because rejection always feels personal. If you've ever gotten an email or the letter that begins, we regret to inform you, or we've decided to go in a different direction. Or if you've ever heard the phrase, it's not you, it's me. If you've ever lined up to read the final roster and you look and your name is not listed there, you know how that feels like a direct hit to your own self-worth. You were rejected because you were not good enough. So the disciples experienced both of these facets. Jesus was rejected and shown dishonor for his mission, and they were rejected for their association with him. And James and John knew exactly what needed to happen. Jesus needed to act like Elijah and make an example of this town. Let them call down fire and wipe this town off the face of the map. Their zeal for the honor of Christ may have been commendable, but their lack of understanding about his mission and his kingdom was not. The early church father, Ambrose, sees in the disciples here a desire and an expectation that they would be welcomed in Samaria, to be recognized, even to be loved. They were embracing a theology of glory. They were expecting Jesus to build his kingdom with earthly status and earthly power and earthly dignity. But in contrast, Ambrose points out that the will of Christ aligned himself with God's plan. And so he accepted rejection and suffering. I think... Sometimes we can have that same mindset as James and John today. Sometimes we're tempted to think that for the church to be successful in its mission, for the kingdom of God to advance, we need a seat at the world's table. We need to inform and transform the culture. We need a position of power or status in our society. Or at least we ought to be treated with respect by those outside the church. Brothers and sisters, nothing about Jesus' mission on earth should give us the expectation that the world's going to throw open wide its arms and accept us. If the world rejected him, we should expect it to reject those who belong to him. And the nature of his kingdom means that now is not the time for judgment. So when we see the church rejected, we don't respond by praying imprecatory psalms of immediate vengeance. Or trying to gain cultural power and bring down our enemies. Or retaliate and repay evil with evil. Make no mistake. The Lord will judge those individuals and those societies and those nations who reject Jesus and his disciples. But our ministry between the cross and Jesus' glorious return is to be his ambassadors. We are to implore with the world to be reconciled to God. You may experience rejection for the sake of Jesus. Kids, youth, your friends, your peers, and the world around you may think you are foolish for holding to what the Bible says about how you should live. Can you afford to follow Jesus if it costs you your friends, or your popularity, or a place on the team, or at the school you want to attend? And let's just be really clear and honest for all of us. The pressure is only going to increase on us as we continue to hold to Scripture's teaching about how God has designed human sexuality. Can you afford to follow Jesus if not endorsing sin makes you an outcast at work, or even costs you your job, or relationships with family or friends? And are you prepared to do that without retaliating or getting even? If we follow Jesus, we should expect to be rejected for his sake. The second cost we see of following Jesus is the promise of earthly comforts. Let's look again at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this disciple, surely he was sincere in his commitment to leave everything to follow Jesus. He promised to follow Jesus wherever he would go. And Jesus' response is, great, where is it you think we're going? He had no home. He was making his way to Jerusalem to die. The path of discipleship offered no security And no promise of possessions. These two verses on their own destroy any foundation for the prosperity gospel. Jesus makes no pretense of promising an easy life for those who follow him. If you are following Jesus because you think your life will be better, I got bad news for you. He had already told his disciples previously, those who wish to follow him must deny themselves, take up their cross every day, And follow his way of living. Rather than a life of ease. The cost of following Jesus. Might even include suffering want. For his sake. To quote the great theologian Shai Lin. If you're living your best life now. You're headed for hell. And we should see in this exchange. The reality that we learned in Hebrews. Those who follow Christ. Are strangers and exiles on this earth. They are seeking a homeland, desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. So while the Lord may see fit to grant us material blessings, and let's be honest, every person in this room is in the top 1% of the 1% of people who have ever lived on the face of the planet, those things are not guaranteed, and we may be called to forego them, to follow Jesus. We must count the cost of earthly comfort to follow him. The next interaction pushes the envelope even further. Discipleship may even cost us family relations. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God you got to hand it to Jesus. He is an equal opportunity offender, isn't he? I mean, on the face of it, this seems like a really harsh response. I mean, what could be more reasonable than asking to fulfill the obligation to care for an aging parent and to see to his burial? And Jesus here is not saying that caring for parents is wrong. Instead, he's emphasizing that even these closest relationships must become secondary to the disciples' commitment to Christ. Even fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers may need to be left behind in pursuit of Jesus. John Bunyan pictured this perfectly in Pilgrim's Progress. When he has Christian heading to the wicked gate, And his wife and his children are standing behind him, calling for him to come back to the city of destruction. And Bunyan writes, but the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled. The pursuit of the celestial city and of its king had become so precious to Christian that not even his family could dissuade him from running to it. Such is the cost of discipleship. But, but what are we to make of this strange statement? Let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, first of all, that's impossible. The dead can't do anything. And, and, and second, isn't it the job of ministers to preside over funerals? Isn't it their job to bury the dead? I think the key to understanding this statement is in the command that follows when Jesus says, proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, at this point in the mission, now is the time of urgency. Jesus' face was set on Jerusalem to go to accomplish salvation. For the physically dead, it's too late. But for the physically alive, gospel proclamation is the only hope. So he told this follower, let those who have no spiritual life attend to business about death. His disciples must be about kingdom business about proclaiming the message of eternal life. Those most dear to us may reject Jesus. They may ridicule us or cast us off for our dedication to him and his word. Jesus makes it clear. The cost of discipleship includes making even the relationship with one's own parents secondary to following him. And the question stands. Can you afford that cost? Finally, none of these are one-time events. The cost of following Jesus includes perseverance to the end. Look at verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, we have what looks like a reasonable request. I mean, after all, Elisha was allowed to say goodbye to his parents before he went and followed Elijah. But as Jesus has shown multiple times in this passage, he's different than Elijah. Following him requires a greater commitment. The picture of the plow would have been familiar to those who heard him speaking. A farmer who looked back at where he had been would get off course would plow uneven lines. The only way to remain steady is to keep his eyes straight forward on the path ahead until the work was done. Daryl Bach says this of this last statement. He reads it as a warning of Jesus. He says, if one is going to follow Jesus, one needs to keep following him and not look back. The nation of Israel looked back after the exodus. Lot's wife looked back after departing Sodom. Discipleship is not an emotional decision of one moment, but a walk of life. The potential costs in this passage are not universal and they're not comprehensive. You won't necessarily have to face all of these. And discipleship may cost you something that's not even listed here. But listen to how Michael Wilcox summarizes the message of this chapter. And then let's consider the questions he asks. He says, ordinary security, accepted customs, home ties, are all still the norm. Jesus approves of them since they are part and parcel of the social life of mankind as his father created it. And that is normally the way his followers are led to live. But the crucial question, the one he is asking here, concerns what happens at the parting of ways. Suppose I were to lead you towards work in which your income would be lower your prospects, humanly speaking, more uncertain, and your accustomed standard of living non-existent. Or suppose I were to ask you to do something for me, which, according to most people of your class and background, is simply not done. Or suppose I were to summon you to my service with such a peremptory call that your nearest and dearest would have to be left without an explanation. Would you even then come my way? The question presented to all of us here that we all must ask is this. Can you afford to follow Jesus? And I know that's heavy. That's the point of this passage. We ought to get to the end and feel a weight. When we get to the end, we ought to be asking, who then could follow Jesus? But this passage is not without hope for us. There at the end of verse 60, again at the end of verse 62, we find that key phrase, the kingdom of God. There are not only costs to consider, but there is also the benefit of becoming citizens of the kingdom of God. The good news of the gospel is that as we consider this kingdom, we find that even the very things given up in this world are restored completely in that heavenly kingdom. So while those who follow Jesus may suffer rejection in this life, consider his words from Matthew 10. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. question is, will you trade rejection now for acceptance by the Father in heaven Will you seek seek status and dignity in the eyes of the world now or in the eyes of the Lord of the universe in eternity? Or consider the cost of security uh, and material comforts and earthly comforts in this world. Jesus says this in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Those who have no place to lay their head as they follow Christ here have an eternal home prepared for them in heaven with him. Can you give up the things now? that moths and rust destroy for a treasure that cannot be stolen and will not decay. And Jesus even has a promise for those who lose their own families to pursue him in Mark 10. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Those who leave all to follow Christ get the communion of the saints now and eternal life with God in heaven. So I ask you now, not whether you can afford to follow Jesus, but hearing what he offers those who do, can you afford to reject him? Christ Church, the cost of discipleship may be great, but the reward is worth it. Life with God in his paradise forever. So let us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and accept whatever cost we may incur, counting even the gains that we have as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Like the Apostle Paul, may our goal and our prayer be that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the cost and this is the reward of following Jesus. Is he worth the cost? Will you persevere, not looking back, but instead looking to Him to the end. By His Spirit, may it be so. And may we all receive Him as our reward. Let's pray. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast save in the death of Christ our God all the vain things that charm us most. May we sacrifice them to His blood. Help us to count the cost and to see surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and pursue him relentlessly. We ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.